and welcome to The Expert Factor, the podcast for people who haven't had enough of experts. I'm Hannah White, Director of the Institute for Government. I'm Paul Johnson, Director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies. And I'm Arnon Menon, Director of UK in a Changing Europe. And this is The Expert Factor, the podcast that takes a step back and dives a bit deeper to explain the policy challenges facing our politicians and the issues that we all need to understand as the next general election draws near. This week, we're going to be asking why the UK seems to be so bad at infrastructure. The latest headlines about HS2 are probably just the latest example. Obviously, we saw Rishi Sunak delaying for days during his party conference in Manchester and then ending days of speculation and rumour to announce that he was pulling the plug on the latest leg of the multi-billion pound project uh, to extend HS2 from Birmingham to Manchester. But HS2 isn't the only example of things that don't seem to always go according to plan when it comes to infrastructure in the UK. We've had Heathrow's still unbuilt third runway, the much delayed and over budget Elizabeth Line project, and similar stories with projects like the Hinkley C nuclear reactor. The list goes on. So is the UK particularly bad at this sort of thing? And if so, then what is the problem? Is it that we're all a nation of NIMBYs? Are the NIMBYs worse in this country than in others? What could be done differently? And do either Rishi Sunak or Keir Starmer seem to have the answers? We've got a lot to discuss. I think the obvious place to start seeing it's just been so much in the news is HS2. Some of the work we've done at the IFG has found that the government is notoriously poor at estimating the costs of major projects at their outset. And we've seen that with projects like Crossrail and Thames Tideway, for example. So why are we so bad at this? The cost overruns, the escalation cost was one of the answers given by the government as to why it had decided to cut the next leg of of HS2. So, Paul, why are we so bad at cost estimation? Are we particularly bad or is this just par for the course? Well, we are bad. I think there are a number of reasons for it. I mean, one is when you have a project like HS2, I mean, let's be frank, there's quite a lot of lobbying going on. There are a lot of companies that will make money from that. They've got a a lot more expertise and clearly a reason for suggesting the costs won't be terribly big in the first place, because in general, once something starts, it's quite hard to stop it. The level of expertise uh, across government in the nitty gritty of some of this is limited. We also suffer from, related to what you were saying about NIMBYs, that these projects tend to get more expensive as they go along in order to protect people's homes, the environment, keep noise down and so on, such that I believe that nearly all of the HS2 line from London to Birmingham is either through tunnels or uh, through deep cuttings. And that's turned out more expensive than expected. I think what is odd in a way is that we don't seem to do a very good job of learning from experience. It was not perhaps terribly surprising to anyone that these costs came in more than expected, although the scale of the increase is just extraordinary from a few tens of billions to about a hundred billion in terms of the expected cost is a huge change. Although it is worth saying that this is over 20 or 30 years, this isn't a hundred billion pounds in in one year. We have very tight planning restrictions. An awful lot of consultation is required before things can happen. And frankly, quite a big industry, both legal and professional services and others who are very expert in making as much trouble as possible when there are people making objections. It 
it actually genuinely is the case that it is much more expensive to build things like rail and road in the UK than it is in most other countries, significantly to do with the way that we treat planning law and how we adapt to that. Well, we definitely come back to that one. But I just wanted to ask you, Anand, Paul points out that we don't seem to be good at learning lessons when we get this wrong. Is that partly to do with the fact that the personalities change, that the big infrastructure decisions come down to a succession of politicians and you have a, a series for example with hs2 andrew adonis was a fan george mm-hmm. osborne was a fan boris johnson was a fan but then rishi sunak wasn't and then the decision gets changed is that one of the reasons you think yeah it's absolutely partly a question of personality i think it's also just a question of political structures and how we're governed we have this sort of rather impositional policy style in this country where decisions get taken on top and passed down that makes policy churn almost inevitable. We are quite bad at learning from past mistakes, I think. And I think that partly is a function of how our political system works. So a lot of political and institutional factors conspire to make this even worse. And when it comes to costs, I mean, we've got to bear in mind as well, I think, the fact that, you know, we're going through a period of very, very high inflation. I think the last number I saw was that the annual rate of construction price rises, construction material price rises, was about 26% last year. So that hasn't helped when it comes to the cost of this project. And Paul, um, I mean, is there a logic to, to cutting our losses now that the budget for HS2 has, has escalated so dramatically, as, as you and Anand point out, or does it always pay in the end to build? I mentioned Crossrail, of course, now the Elizabeth line, which did go massively over budget, but then there are record numbers of people now travelling on it. So what's the answer I mean, to be fair, the Elizabeth Line Crossrail didn't go anywhere near as much over budget, um, as either proportionally and certainly not in terms of tens of billions as HS2. I'm slightly torn on HS2. I mean, I was never someone, frankly, who thought that if you had a hundred billion pounds to spend on infrastructure, that's a big if, but you know, that was the amount that it was going to cost, that that was the best way of spending it. And I think there's probably quite a lot to be said for spending the 40 billion or so that we are in inverted commas saving by not building the Birmingham to Manchester element on the sorts of things that Rishi Sunak announced. Now, there are two big caveats to that. The first is that uh, this is rather as Anang was suggesting, just one example of the top down policy by announcement problem that we have with policy more generally creates ridiculous amounts of uncertainty. Who's going to believe the next government who so-called commit to the next big infrastructure project? So I think it's part of a bigger problem with the way that we do infrastructure, and that uncertainty is simply created by doing that. I think the second issue is to seriously question whether that £40 billion will actually be spent on any of these other things. I mean, I think in a way, the most plausible argument for carrying on with Crossrail, which a number of political commentators have made, is that the problem is not getting the money. The problem is getting the political agreement on what to do. And we sort of had political agreement on HS2 and whether we will actually build the railways across various parts of the north of England that the Prime Minister was promising I honestly don't know, but I do think the whole thing is, it's a tragedy. (laughs) We spent tens of billions and we're spending tens of billions on a somewhat faster rail link between London and Birmingham. We still don't know what we're going to do 
with the rest of it. And this is, what, 10 or more years on from when the whole thing was supposed to have been kicked off. It's worth stressing, isn't it, just how remarkable the degree of political consensus was, because it was across both parties and across levels and layers of government as well. There was a very broad consensus built up over this, which was quite extraordinary. My sense is it was a consensus based on the idea that, I mean, obviously the government announces it. It's, it seems like a great big project. It's got some benefit. Frankly, in these circumstances, often only the Treasury <laughs> worries about the cost. Yeah. Why would the opposition come out against it? So it's a sort of, it's a consensus, but I'm not sure it's ever a desperately well-informed consensus. I guess it raises the question of what role Parliament should play in these sorts of decisions. Because, I mean, my heart really goes out to the poor people, the staff and, and the members who sat on the HS2 committee for over, I think, 1,300 hours. I read someone calculated on Twitter over the weekend going through the complicated hybrid bill procedure to allow everybody to petition and put in their concerns about the proposals in great, great detail. And then the PM just stands up at the party conference and says it's all been scrapped. It seems very odd to, to have that degree of sort of parliamentary resource and, and involvement and discussion go into it and then for it to just be shut down as a political decision. Of course, it's a perfectly legitimate political decision, but Anand? Yeah, it is striking, as you say. You know, Parliament spent, as you said, many, many hours discussing and debating this. And it is quite striking that the Prime Minister can just stand up at a party conference and say, actually, we're not doing this anymore. I would have thought that that's the sort of thing that should have been at least announced in Parliament and preferably debated in Parliament as well. But everything is so highly politicised as we enter what looks and feels a bit like a one-year election campaign that policymaking has become very, very personalised as a result. At the same time, we got the announcement of the reform of the A-level system. Now, I've got a lot of sympathy with the refor reforming the A-level system. But again, for that to come from the Prime Minister at party conference after the years and years and years and years of pieces of work that have gone on into this, it just does seem the most extraordinary degree of centralisation. Well, can we go back to the point you were making about our planning system? Because obviously, one of the things we heard from the Labour Party at their conference, mostly in relation to, to house bills, was that they plan to go back to this very vexed question of, of reform of the planning system. What do you think their chances are? Well, it is capable of being changed, both in policy and in practice. And I have a lot of sympathy with the view that changing the processes by which the planning system works is potentially very important. It, the current system creates an enormous amount of uncertainty. So when you're a developer, whether it's building a road or building housing, you don't know whether you're, you're going to get permission, but more importantly, you don't know how long it's going to take or how much it's going to cost to get to the point where you do get permission. I'm very clear in my own mind that we have built too few houses and too few roads and too few railway lines and too little in the way of energy infrastructure and so on and so on over the last many decades. Now, it's not just the planning system that's responsible for that, but it does have a role to play. So I very much hope that we do get a system which is significantly streamlined, and in the words of Keir Starmer, that he will, in the end, ignore local opposition where there are necessary, in the view of the government or the local authority, where it's necessary to build houses, houses around London and the southeast where there are jobs, or roads and railway line across the Midlands and the north where there's no link between the housing and the jobs that exist. I think the big question is the political one, which is, will they hold the line on that? We have had uh, government after government saying they will do this. And most recently, 
Boris Johnson was saying he was very much in favour of planning reform and pushing through development. But the loss of one by-election a couple of years ago led to scrapping the entire programme and indeed sacking the minister responsible. I mean, it's worth saying a couple of things. I mean, firstly, just how intrinsically all this is tied to productivity and growth, which are the issues confronting our economy at the moment. You know, you think about the relative lack of productivity in our sort of second tier cities compared to their European equivalents. You can trace a lot of that to bad transport infrastructure, you know, the hassle of traveling within Birmingham and the fact that these commuter times are far, far slower than they are in equivalent European countries. And I do think there is an opportunity here. I mean, Keir Starmer said he was going to bulldoze his way through objections. And I think it's the sort of thing a new government with a bunch of MPs who haven't gone into bad habits of voting against their own party, can do. So I think it's quite important that if he's going to do it, he does it early on, with the the flush of victory is still felt on his side of the House. And so there is an opportunity here, I think, that a sort of relatively tired government facing as much opposition from its own side as from the other signally struggles to do. And is it just uh, the fact that our planning system makes it so difficult? Is it just about the sort of NIMBY factor and the the strength of the constituency system we have with certain parties, with certain interests in certain places, which makes it difficult for them to push these sorts of projects through? Do other, other countries have institutions which help them when they're trying to make planning work to deliver infrastructure, Paul? Well, some of it's to do with the very low level of local government where these decisions get taken. So very often it's district councils, so the very smallest areas where decisions on housing developments, for example, are taken, where it should surely be at a higher level. But of course, we don't have a regional level of government. And I think that in itself creates problems here, that if you are a very small district council, you will really be upsetting your current electorate if you give permission to Uh, developments within that area. That may be more manageable in a regional context. One of the other problems we have is that there genuinely are people who lose out. I mean, if you build a road through my back garden, I'm going to be really fed up. But what we need is, is therefore arguably a kind of much clearer way in which you compensate people for development, but also you can compensate local authorities for development. At the moment, they don't gain as much as you might expect from the higher levels of population or the higher levels of development they get within within their area. So the, the incentives here are misaligned. The misaligned incentives are absolutely fundamental here. And it should not be beyond the wit of man to ensure that those councils that allow these things to go forward see some of the economic and financial reward from it. And I think at the moment, our system doesn't do that sufficiently. Nana, do you think there's an intersection then with the agenda which ostensibly both the main parties have to level up or to promote regional economic development through the devolution of greater powers to local areas? Do you think that there's a potentially a a way in which these wish to, to reform planning on the part of Labour, but also obviously from the from the government's point of view, is talking about you know wanting to build more houses and so on. Do you think devolution is part of the answer? Uh, I do think devolution is part of the answer, absolutely. I think it's part of the answer in many ways, not least because you can build a system where those local politicians who oversee investment in infrastructure, which generates growth, will get the reward from it, and the rewards are concentrated back in their area. So I think, yes, devolution is certainly a significant part of the answer to this. I think broader planning reform by national government is crucial as well. I don't think it's an either-or. I think we need both. 
Paul, you mentioned in your answer at the start a question about the expertise within government we have to make decisions on these major infrastructure projects. The IFG has done some work on on the Treasury and, and argued that we should bring in more qualified civil engineers and people with relevant expertise to scrutinise the, the cost estimates which come out from departments on some of these projects. So do you think there's also a sort of a skills and knowledge in government point when it comes to better enabling politicians to make these decisions? Without doubt, right across government and particularly at the centre where, I mean, the Treasury is a small organisation. There are probably fewer than Certainly when I was there, there were only about 15 people in the entire transport spending team. Maybe it's a little bit bigger now, I don't know, but it won't be much bigger. Most of them were very bright, but very young and inexperienced and uh, came from a broadly generalist background with few, if any of them, having any significant experience working in transport, let alone in some of the issues around the costs of projects. So clearly, you know, when these projects are first thought of, there's a lot of external work that goes on. But whether there is adequate, intelligent customer in, in the Treasury, and indeed, to some extent, sometimes in senior levels of the Department of Transport, I think is seriously, uh, seriously open to question. Now, you can't extend the Treasury so that it's got deep expertise in absolutely everything. But you do need to make sure that it's got, when it needs it, the resources to uh, to make sure that it's getting its own advice on some of these things. I mean, it's very good generally at challenging other people, but it's very often not got its own resource to come up with its own estimates that it's it's itself in control of. And Anna, do you think, I mean, we talked about the incentives for politicians and people in different parts of the country to promote infrastructure projects or not, but do you think there's also a question about incentives within government and the incentives for projects to stay on schedule and to budget and enough of a sense of accountability of the people who get involved in what are inevitably very long-term projects to ensure that they get delivered as they were promised in the first place rather than turning into something completely different by the time they're delivered. I mean, I don't want to sort of be accused of teaching granny how to suck eggs here because I know the IFG have done loads of work on this. And yeah, it is just a chronic problem of our system that the ministers who take decisions aren't around when when the results of those decisions become apparent. So yes, in that sense, there is a lack of accountability. I think there's also a cultural issue here. I just think the British state has got used to underinvesting. If you look at investment figures compared to our nearest rivals, we simply don't invest enough. And I think that almost feels like it's become a habit in UK government not to take investment seriously enough and not to prioritise it the way we probably should. And part of that, you know, and it's the same old story every week in a way, isn't it? Speaks to the sort of chronic short-termism in our politics. You know, I can't, just throughout this conversation, I'm thinking of that Nick Clegg clip, there's no point investing in nuclear because it won't come on stream until 2019, which sounds so hideous now that, you know, all those things contribute to this, I think. That point is really important. We've talked a lot about planning and all those sorts of things and whether we're overrunning on costs. But actually, we just invest less of public money in infrastructure and in investment than almost all other developed countries or or countries that have got a similar level of income as we do. And we've done that for many, many years. And actually, you know, interesting point right now, as of today, we've got one of our highest levels of public sector investment that we've had in the last 40 years. This government has ramped it up. What are its plans? It's to ramp it right back down again and really (laughs) quite sharply over the next five years. Again, because when you've got a public finance problem and we have a public finance problem, what's the easiest way in the short run to deal with that? Well, it's not to 
cut the state pension. It's not to raise taxes even further, and it's not to cut nurses' pay. It is to say, well, we're just going to spend less on infrastructure because the, the costs of that are costs that appear in the long run, not costs that appear in the short run. And we've been through this cycle time and time and time again. We went through it in big time in the 1990s. We went through it in 2010 after the financial crisis with absolute cross-party support, it's worth saying, that halving of investment spending at that point. And we've got it again now because whilst um, the, the opposition Labour Party is saying they would find more money for green investment, even with that, they would still on those plans cut investment as a fraction of national income over the next period and certainly appear to be agreeing to the cut in other investment that's happening, that's planned at least. You see it across the piece, don't you? So this isn't just a question of transport. You see it in the shortage of sort of MRI machines in the NHS, the shortage of beds. Oh, just yet. chronic capital underinvestment over a sustained period is coming back to haunt us. You see it in the potholes, for heaven's sake. I mean, it's just that lack of basic infrastructure spending over a significant period. It's one of the big problems that the NHS is facing, that uh, through the 2010s, not only was the capital allocation too little, but it was quite often used, it's actually moved across, to patch up the needs during winter crises and so on. And we have ended up in this result, not just where we don't have enough CAT scanners and MRI scanners and so on, but actually we've got the hospital infrastructure, new buildings that are not fit for purpose because we haven't had that constant level of investment over time that's been needed. And you say that, you know, the capital is the easy thing to cut because the, the consequences happen over the long term, but eventually they happen on someone's watch, don't they, as, as we've seen with the concrete scandal in schools. So it seems even more remarkable that parties can at this stage be deprioritising capital expenditure when you've got such a front and centre example with quite a lot of cut through, I think, at the, at the school gate, as they say, which just demonstrates the, the consequences of the long-term underinvestment, in this case, in, in the school's estate. I mean, I think it's remarkable, except for the fact that we as a people don't vote for growth. You know, you're not going to win elections by promising long-term transport or capital investment. And, and, and that is one of the problems is we, you know, in, political incentives are built on how people vote and what people vote on. And those things are never real issues here. And so they sort of tend to get deprioritized and shoved to one side. Yeah, and it's also interesting, you know, that the big cut in school capital spending, and, and I think you know a lot of this concrete would still have been there, whether you know however much we spent over the last ten years or so. But there was a big cut in school spending in 2010, um, you know, very much a policy of Michael Gove, which very interestingly, a couple of years ago, he repudiated. He said it, he was asked, you know, "What is there something you regret?" Yes, I regret stopping the capital capital program for schools. He said. Yes, so maybe a lesson learnt there, but possibly too late for a little late. (laughs) (laughs) And as you say, we you know we don't vote for growth, but the people who might help the country grow, the investors who may or may not choose to invest in the UK, are certainly watching, aren't they? What our politicians do. I think the FT was was reporting that the Australian-based firm IFM Investors, who are one of the biggest shareholders in, in Manchester Airport and the owner of the M6 toll road, have said the UK is no longer an attractive place to invest due to political upheaval and uncertainty over the direction of government policy. I mean, that certainly seems like we're shooting ourselves in the foot over this. No, no, absolutely. And I think the sting in the tail was I think they also said the US is bad, but the UK is far, far worse, which is uh, a bit, bit of an eye opener. But uh, no, no, absolutely. And this isn't just 
policy uncertainty between parties, though certainly we have that. It's policy uncertainty within parties, because who knows what the economic priorities of this government really are and what they will be going forward. I think you take the decision on the deadline for stopping the sale of petrol cars as an example. I mean, that's just left me bamboozled because, I mean, personally, I don't think shifting the date from 2030 to 2035 is massively significant in terms of the global climate crisis. But I think it's massively significant in terms of the signal it sends to potential investors who had been, I think, reassured just the week before that the government had no intention of shifting that deadline. And now we have the Labour Party saying, we're going to shift it back if we come into power, which leaves investors thinking, what, we'll wait a year, see who's in, see on what basis we make our calculations. It's just that kind of chronic uncertainty that makes it, I think, harder for companies for foreign companies to think yeah let's go invest there because we know what's happening there and there's a stable framework because there simply isn't that stable framework and paul do you think if one way or the other we get a government with a majority which seems like it might govern consistently for five years after the next election that that changes or do you think we've got more of a job to to build back investor confidence in our politics I mean, there's clearly going to be a job to do, and confidence will come on the basis of revealed behaviour. So, I mean, it's it's all part of this same short-termism. Short-termism and uncertainty are kind of the the same thing in many ways. And it, it, it's, it's odd to say it, I had a lot of sympathy with, you know, in a sense, the specific things that Rishi Sunak now announced a couple of weeks ago at the Conservative Party conference. Yes, I can see the case for moving from HS2 to these other projects. I can see the case for saying you're going to reform A-levels. And I could also, by the way, see the case for putting back by five years the point at which you can't sell petrol cars and i can see the case for saying you're not going to have a hundred percent ending gas boilers in 2035 taken individually i can see there probably is a kind of cost benefit case for them but i think it misses the broader context which is that by doing these things in this apparently unplanned haphazard way you create a great deal of additional uncertainty and therefore cost in terms of how private investors are thinking. So if we get a, a, a new government and if it's got a substantial majority and if it also shows itself to be planning for the long term and consistent in the way that it does that, then I think it can begin to regain some of that confidence. But it's not something that will come automatically. It's something that you have to earn over a period of time. And it's something that it's harder to earn than it is to lose. I mean, you can lose these things very quickly, as we saw, you know, a year ago with the, with the mini budget and so on. You then have to do a lot of work, as we've seen, actually, to be fair to them, with what Jeremy Hunt and Rishi Sunak have been doing at the public finances and so on. You then have to do a lot of work to earn that back. And I think in terms of certainty, uh, people's belief in your credibility and so on, that's something you have to earn over time. Something I actually I wanted to get your view on, Paul, is is a proposal that's has come from some think tanks, I think, but there's some indication that the Labour are interested in this this idea, of, of which the connection is, you know, for, for thinking about spending for the long term. This idea about having a preventative departmental expenditure limit, the PDEL spending, to sort of incentivise government departments to spend on things which would end up being preventative and saving the government cost in the longer term. What's your view on that? Um, I don't really get it, if I'm if I'm honest. If the idea here is that this somehow gets rid of the constraint on the amount 
that government can borrow that if you put if you label something pdel then you can just borrow more i think that's just nonsense and and i'm afraid it is sometimes presented like that the amount that you can borrow is not defined by the way that you label it it's defined by what's happening to overall levels of government debt and what the market's views are on how much of that they're willing to buy and what interest rate they require if the idea is to somehow say that there is this much available for preventative spending and therefore only this much available for some other form of day-to-day spending maybe that sort of slightly shifts the borders between where we do the spending but it's not obvious to me that it would i mean would that really mean that we would stop operate you know we would stop operations in hospital today in order to do more public health spending and and, and save lives in the future i i don't see that it does it doesn't doesn't get around the fundamental question which is if you actually want to spend more on prevention sure start for example or public health spending which is shown to be effective then that means that you in the short run at least need to be raising the money in order to do that so i i guess what worries me and and, and of course then you could have endless arguments about what would come under this well, that's the preventative thing, yeah. spending thing. I mean, there's so much. You could claim that everything in education could come under that if you wanted it to. Um, so, you know, you then have endless arguments about that. So I, I understand the point behind it, and I understand the, the driving force behind it, but I don't think, I really don't think that just by changing what you call something, that's getting at the fundamental issue. And it is just scratching around the surface of the fact that our politics is chronically short term. I mean, that's the issue that that's meant to deal with, isn't it? That ultimately the short term always triumphs over the medium and the long term. I mean, it's interesting. I was actually talking to, indeed, interviewing Nick McPherson, uh, who was the permanent secretary at the Treasury between, I think, 2005 and 2016. And he said this very, very clearly and in terms that, you know, the problem that we have is exactly the short term one that people will vote for, you know, higher pensions and higher nurses pay and so on before and above they will vote for either tax rises or cuts in those things in order to fund long-term investment and that in his view was the role of politicians i mean in a sense he was deflecting blame a bit from the, the role of the treasury there but i think you know he's he, he's right that's how our politics does seem to work well, I'm delighted to say that there's also a Brexit angle to this, that it would be remiss of me not to mention, because one of the things that we lost access to with Brexit was the European Investment Bank. And the domestic replacements, I think, provided about under 20% of the infrastructure investment that the EIB had in 2022. There's been a decrease in investment because of our lack of access to the European Investment Bank. A lot of that European Investment Bank money went to transport, whereas the domestic banks are investing far, far less in transport. And part of that is because the European Investment Bank did long-term relatively high-risk projects that our domestic banks are not capable of doing as yet. So there is a slight Brexit angle to this and that we've lost that source of long-term investment and infrastructure finance. I think we've successfully in this podcast stacked up a whole series of difficult decisions which are going to lie in wait for whoever does win the next election. And that's it for this week. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Expert Factor. Remember, you can find us at Acast, iTunes, Spotify, wherever you find your podcasts. Do subscribe and please leave us a review. We like to know that you haven't had anywhere near enough of experts. We'll be back next week for another deep dive. Please do join us and do get in touch to suggest the type of topics you'd like us to explore. 
Until then, it's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from them. See you for the next instalment of The Expert Factor.